Hey everyone, before I start this podcast, I want to quickly let you know about my new Patreon. For me, this Patreon is an opportunity to do more of what I love while getting a little extra financial help finishing my theology MA and taking care of my family. For you, it means rewards for your patronage, such as early access to podcasts and new book projects I'm working on, all of my books in digital format, a special bi-weekly podcast that will discuss biblical theological issues, as well as analysis of a theologically relevant movie selected for that episode, and the ability to see and discuss with me the work I'm doing completing my MA and book projects along the way. At the highest support tier, you can also get autographed physical copies of my books, a shout-out in the podcasts, and the opportunity to suggest a film for me to discuss in the exclusive Patreon podcast. If you'd like to check it out, and be aware that you can be a supporter for as little as a dollar a month, visit www.patreon.com slash you can also click the Patreon link on the sidebar at cantusfirmus.com. That's cantus-firmus.com. Thanks and enjoy the show. Greetings and welcome to the Cantus Firmus podcast. I want to give a special shout out to the Patreon supporters at the Phoebe tier. That's Kelly Smith and Peter Mangle. Uh, at that tier, they uh, get access to a special Patreon podcast. Uh, all the books I have digitally, everything I've got in paperback. Uh, they get to uh, pick a movie for me to discuss in the Patreon exclusive podcast. Uh, and they also get their names mentioned uh, in the shout-out in the podcast. Uh, if you're interested in checking out that Patreon, uh, we also uh, have, uh, tiers at, we have tiers at $1, $5, and $50, all with uh, various rewards. This will likely be a, a fairly short podcast. I uh, just wanted to put something out for Easter that I thought would be uh, helpful or significant, maybe, uh, for how we think about the, uh, the issue of the resurrection. And uh, normally I try to stick kind of close to a script uh, for these solo podcasts where I don't have a guest, but in this case, uh, I'm really just going to go over some of some of the material in a, uh, a short book that I wrote, or maybe more of an essay, The Gospel of the Resurrection, which you can get on Amazon Kindle for like 99 cents, I think. So I just wanted to highlight some of the emphases in the book. The book, as I said, is called The Gospel of the Resurrection. And it has a subtitle, How Belief in Eternal Conscious Torment Has Obscured the Apostolic Understanding of the Gospel. And basically what I'm saying there is that there is this idea in Scripture, um, in the Old Testament, that, that death means the end. And that when Jesus comes and is raised from the dead um, as the first fruits of the resurrection that, that all Christians are supposed to come later there's a message that's communicated there that death has been defeated that um that the gospel is not just christ died for your sins you know the message of the gospel wasn't well you know we're all going to live forever but you know we would live forever in hell but then jesus comes and now some of us can live forever in heaven instead the idea is death is pervasive death has victory over us and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the defeat of death. Instead of scripture teaching that there's this inherent immortality of the human soul, it instead argues that human beings are mortal. 
To put it simply, humanity is in a state of decay, heading toward death and non-existence. It's only by being joined to Christ who conquered death that we can have hope of life that goes on forever. So I start by looking at what the Old Testament has to say about this this idea of, of human mortality. So in Genesis two sixteen through 17, we read that the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And my friend Dr. Glenn Peoples uh, provided a, a useful commentary of this passage. Uh, he said, God tells Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or he would die. Literally, in, in Hebrew, dying you shall die. Calvin was right, I think, to see that this means not that man would drop dead on the day that he ate, but that Adam's death commenced on that day and culminated on the day that he returned to the dust, just as God promised. Commenting on this verse, Calvin said, The miseries and evils, both of soul and body, with which man is beset so long as he is on earth, are a kind of entrance into death, till death itself entirely absorbs him. As we know, the first humans did rebel against God, and God judged them. The serpent had told Eve that in spite of God's warning, in fact, they would not die. They would gain knowledge and lose nothing. As the story unfolds, we see that this was a lie. In Genesis 3.22, we see that God would not allow sinful man to remain alive indefinitely. Uh, Genesis 3.22, of course, is, is where the, the Lord God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever dot 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 end quote god doesn't finish the sentence here so what that's communicating is that a world in which sinful creatures can't be destroyed but go on perpetually tainting god's creation is too horrible to even discuss uh they, they don't they don't even describe what might happen in that in that scenario it's just left <laughs> as this kind of you know dun 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 and of course this verse wouldn't make a lot of sense if adam and eve were immortal by nature it, it actually assumes that they're not but that immortality for humans was conditioned upon God's grace, which is symbolized, represented by this idea of a tree of life that allows them to live forever as they eat it. The 4th century church father Athanasius gives a, a similar interpretation of the Eden account. He says, This, then, was the plight of men. God had not only made them out of nothing, but had also graciously bestowed on them his own life by the grace of the word. Then, turning from eternal things to things corruptible, by counsel of the devil, they had become the cause of their own corruption and death. For, as I said before, though they were by nature subject to corruption, the grace of their union with the word made them capable of escaping from the natural law, provided that they retained the beauty of innocence with which they were created. This statement he makes, by the way, uh, on his work uh, on the Incarnation. Um, now, it's, it's generally accepted by Old Testament scholars that the idea of life after death uh, was not commonly held by Jews during the time of the writing of the Old Testament scriptures. To give some examples, the Psalms provide uh, a number of references to this idea. Uh, for example, Psalm 115.17, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. Psalm 146 likewise says of man, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Uh, the author of Ecclesiastes is also, um, I think, reflecting the view of, of, uh, of Jews at the time when he says, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Ecclesiastes 9.5. So, you know, man's natural fate is death, not immortality, according to the Old Testament. That being said, th there are some uh, allusions to this possibility of life after death. I think the uh, the strongest one comes from Daniel 12, too, which is, you know, a much later um, 
uh, Old Testament writing, um, where this notion of the resurrection is starting to become expressed explicitly in Scripture. So Daniel 12, 2, uh, he is speaking of um, the resurrection of the redeemed and the wicked. And he says, quote, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Some understand this reference to everlasting contempt as requiring that they be alive forever, uh, being tormented forever. Although contempt is something that is experienced by those who think about them. <laughs> who are perceiving them or seeing them or, or thinking about them, whatever the case may be. Uh, it doesn't refer to the state of those who are contemptible. Um, for that, we could go to a place like uh, Malachi 4, 1 through 3, where we read, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So keeping all that in mind, we, if we, as we move into the New Testament, we have other statements that affirm this idea. So, uh, you know, uh, John 3.16, um, we would perish if not for God giving his only son, by which we might have everlasting life. Uh, John 6.50 claims that the normative, uh, under normative circumstances, humans will die. Um, uh, Romans 6.23 uh, writes that death is the proper payment for our sin. In contrast, God alone possesses immortality uh, in 1 Timothy 6.16. It's a necessary quality of his being. No doubt this idea of a resurrection uh, had come into vogue and was accepted by, at the very least, the, the Pharisees. And the apostolic teaching you know, agrees with the Pharisees on this topic, but it claims that the only way that it's possible is if man is joined to the God-man Jesus Christ, who defeated death and thereby made resurrection unto eternal life possible for all men. So in Christian thinking, yes, there's a resurrection, but the only reason it's even possible is because of Christ's resurrection. What's fascinating then is that when the apostles are preaching the gospel, the resurrection is central. It's not just the cross, it's the resurrection. Peter's speech on Pentecost, um, he says, you know, godless men put him to death. <laughs> I'm talking about Jesus. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. The resurrection is, is, is highly important in this gospel proclamation. When most Christians nowadays talk about the gospel, we don't mention the resurrection. The resurrection is an apologetic argument, if it's anything. Uh, it's really not necessary for our view. And our view, of course, is that when you die, you go to heaven or hell forever, no matter what. The resurrection is not really important for that. Um, all we need is Jesus dying for our sins, so that way, you know, we can get to go to heaven. But I'm contending that the apostolic teaching is very different than that. Uh, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul states that the apostolic teaching, which he received in creedal form, is uh, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Now, for, for Paul, the resurrection here is part of the basic gospel teaching. Likewise, in uh, 2 Timothy 1, 8-10, Paul writes that Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Well, how does he do that? What abolishes death? Is it the cross? 
No, it's the resurrection. As, as Romans 6, 4 through 9 uh, tells us, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Is it the cross that does this? No, it's the resurrection. Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. How'd that happen? The cross? No, the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.20-26, for as by a man, namely Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. The cross, Paul? No, the resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I'm not knocking the cross. The cross is absolutely essential here. But it is part of a proclamation of the gospel that includes the resurrection. And yet our gospel, in many cases, as Christians nowadays, doesn't include it. Now, if you're interested in this idea, you can get this book. I've gone over some of the material already, but this essay, The Gospel of the Resurrection, you can find on Amazon. Uh, you could also read Edward Fudge's The Fire That Consumes, which is a very thorough treatment of the subject. Um, there's also Rethinking Hell. Um, the, the website, of course, RethinkingHell.com, as well as the book Rethinking Hell. Uh, both were pro projects headed up by uh, uh, my friend uh, Chris Date, uh, although my friend uh, Peter Grice has also been, been highly involved in that. Um, if you would like to see uh, the conditionalist or annihilationist viewpoint uh, argued against the traditional view and vice versa, you can read Edward Fudge and Robert Peterson's book, Two Views of Hell. Um, but at the end of the day, the resurrection has to be a part of our gospel proclamation because it was part of the apostles' gospel proclamation. In order for that to happen, we have to have a gospel that makes the resurrection significant. And the gospel that we've been preaching doesn't. Thank you for listening and have a happy Easter.